Hey, so if you happen to drive to Element, you might have left something in the parking lot. <laughs> now, if you're like, oh, that's where it went, uh, I won't embarrass you, but I'll just set it up here. You can come grab it later. <laughs> My dog and I are playing in the parking lot this morning, and I came around like, what is that? Oh, look it, that's... Can you? If nobody, if nobody claims it, it is up for auction. All proceeds will go to the Wimby Stanley bit of <laughs> Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. And if you have a smartphone, you get an app called Uversion. You click on Live and Uversion will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone because they're so smart. You get all the verses, the questions, and all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, a couple things just, just to go over with you. Uh, who is uh, planning to come to Pumpkin Killing next week? Okay, what's wrong with the rest of you? Really? Chibuchets, shotguns. Okay, so come to Pumpkin Killing, and then me and like five people will go blow them up. It's, he's excited about it, I, I can tell. I'm just trying to get the... Uh, if, if you know somebody who goes to Sunday evening service, we're not doing Sunday evening service next week because of the Pumpkin Killing. We want to have kind of a fun day, and I don't have to, feel like I have to rush back here with pumpkin guts all over me to make it to the service. So that'll be, that'll be great. And then also the, the following Sunday, <clears throat> we're going to have a, a special guest speaker here. We're, we're doing a... Th- uh, <clears throat> I don't know why my voice just started. Uh, <clears throat> we're, we're doing a, a Leaders Who Last seminar. November 4th and 5th, and if, if you're a leader in business or you want to learn how to be, you, as part of Element, are more than welcome to come to our Leaders Who Last seminar. It's a Friday night and Saturday morning. Uh, There's a guy named Dave Kraft. He, he wrote a book, and this book is called Leaders Who Last. And then on that su- Sunday morning in two weeks, he's actually going to be sharing with us Sunday morning. And it'd be kind of awkward since he's leaving Sunday afternoon to be like, hey, everybody, here's a video of Dave Kraft speaking. So with that Sunday night, November 6th, we're actually going to do a film in theology. Uh, so it's like, oh, hey, if you like watching movies, come and watch this. It's a comedy. James is going to go ahead and do it. And I won't tell you what it is, but it's a comedy. And he tells me it's very funny, and I have not seen it. So if it's not funny, we can all just gang up and beat him up. And now, <clears throat> then we'll all feel a little bit better. Why don't you stay on me reading to God's Word? This is Psalm 142, verse 1. And it says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as your people would be those who understand in in tough times that we are to cry to you and that you are a God who hears us and a God who has stepped into time to rescue his children. And that would bring us much hope in how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this short series before Christmas called The People of Hope. And I'm going to do something that they tell you never to do in public speaking courses is I'm going to tell you that this was one of the hardest ones for me to put together. Not, not in terms of, oh, it's, but in terms of making it make sense. So if it makes sense, you're like, hey, that was great. Awesome. If it doesn't make sense, you can still blame me anyway, but it's, it's one of those things. It was kind of hard to put together in a way that, that made sense. We do this series called People of Hope because things in our world are looking bad. Like joblessness is up. You know, we don't know really what's going on with our government or the destabilization of governments all over the world. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me is the number one restaurant in the world today is McDonald's. I mean, that's like gives you a chance to like fret and really get kind of scared. Uh, apparently, I just found this out uh, about two months ago. I was reading uh, this, this survey, and it actually showed that the golden arches are the most recognized symbol in the world. You know what used to be the most recognized symbol in the world? A cross. 
That's right. Go McDonald's, apparently. Pray to Ronald. That's how it works. We are called to be a people who do not fret or worry or fear because we trust and hope in God. That is our greater hope. Now, I've been trying to get you guys to memorize this verse, Romans 12, 12. Is anybody able to do that yet? All right, here we go. We'll put it up there for you. All right? By the end of this, I hope you guys can walk out here with this verse memorized. And just you start, rejoice in, be patient in, be constant in. See, just remember the first part, you got the second part down, and then, and then you'll have that. Because this is how a people of hope are actually supposed to live their lives. Unfortunately, it's not how most of our lives actually look. It's hard to trust God when things are good. It's really hard to trust God when things are bad. But we are called to be a people of hope. So we're giving you some portraits of hope, some people throughout the scriptures who had things way worse off than most of us do, and yet they still had hope. We're going to talk today about a guy named David. Uh, he became king in Israel and about how he lived a lot of his times in caves. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 21. There's a term in psychology, and it's called the drive for mastery. Uh, this is something we all possess from the cradle to the grave in one sense or another. It's like this. Young boys, they try and dominate things around them, like small creatures like ants and worms and lizards and butterflies and cats. You know, we, young boys try and do that. Young girls like to dominate things around like dolls or their parents. Doesn't really change as, as they get older. Then you hit teenagers, then you hit adulthood, and, and things, some things change, but our drive for mastery never actually stops. We're always looking for something to be the best in. It could be snowboarding or real estate or stock trading or eBaying, however that works. Maybe uh, you have the, the coolest or brightest Harley. Maybe you have the fastest car, the loudest car stereo, you know, because some people have really crappy cars, but they got loud stereos. I can attest to that at every stoplight that I come to in Santa Maria. Now, my, my wife could care less about any of those things, but if you play her in a board game, it is like, especially a word board game, it is to the death. That, that, that's, she does not like to lose. Psychologists actually say this is one of the reasons why we hate to fail so badly in our lives. Because we want to try and master our own lives. And when we fail a lot, it makes us not only lose hope in ourselves, but in our world and our family. And ultimately, we lose hope in God. But what I hope that you come to see is that this whole idea of hope is not rested upon you. It is rested upon our great God and who he is and what he has done. I mean, failure really doesn't hurt so bad when you're a little kid. Like when you start to learn how to walk, everybody falls down. I call when little kids walk, I call it the drunken sailor because they do this. A couple weeks ago at the newcomer party, Donald's little girl is learning how to walk. And she comes in and he calls it the Jack Sparrow. Because she does this, she's all... As she's walking around, I'm like... That's a better term than the drunken sailor. It actually makes more sense to today. You know, but as a little kid, you fall, you get back up. It's not really a big deal. But the older you get, if you're trying to walk and, and you fall, like say at a high school or a college graduation, it's like the end of the world. It's like, oh my goodness. And then when you get even older, we have special alert systems for when you fall because it's just, it just gets worse and worse. I mean, failure is not so bad actually when you, when you don't have to be in control of everything. And we can respond to failure in our lives in one of two ways. The first way, you can let it paralyze you. You can let it steal your hope. Or the second way is that you can trust God. And when you trust God, failure can actually begin to energize you because you're hoping in Him. It can push us to new learning. People's responses and perceptions of failure make a large difference to what they become in their lives. This is more than IQ, more than looks, more than money. Daniel Goldman wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence. And he shows studies that shows the top performers in fields from athletics to music share one common trait, enthusiasm and persistence and hope in the face of every failure and every setback. 
One of the most well-known people and adventurous men in all of Scripture is a guy named King David. Uh, David, before he was even king, experiences a string of success. It seems like he can do no... He's just a natural at everything that he does. He is anointed to be the next king by the prophet Samuel. That's a big deal. He defeats a giant named Goliath with a slingshot. That's a big deal. I mean, I've, been, I've been hit with a rock off a slingshot, and I didn't, I didn't pass out. It just hurt and made me really mad. But apparently he can kill giants with one. That, that, that's amazing. Saul, the, the current king, makes David a warrior musician and then gives David his daughter as his bride, and David loves Saul's daughter. The army loves David. People write songs about David. David trusted God. He is full of hope. I mean, this is like you and I. Maybe, maybe you grow up and you, and you go through school. And you do pretty well in school. And then you get out of school. And maybe you meet the person of your dreams. And then you get the job you always wanted. And then you get married to that person of your dreams. And then you get a house. And you get your 2.3 kids. And you have a little vacation time. And everything seems to be looking great. That's kind of David's life in our vernacular. But then what happens is everything begins to be stripped away one by one. The king, Saul, gets very jealous of David. And so he decides he needs to get rid of David. And so David loses his job, his income, his security. He loses his wife. Saul takes his daughter away from David and gives her to another guy. Eventually, David actually gets her back and like about 15 chapters later. Uh, but then after this, he actually has to flee from the king because, again, the king wants him dead. He runs to a place called Ramah. Ramah is the place where Samuel the prophet was. But Saul pursues him anyways, like, I don't care if God's there, I'm going to get that David. And so then David runs to Jonathan, his best friend, who was actually Saul's son. Jonathan refuses to lift a sword against his father and says, sorry, I can't do anything to help you. So David loses his job, his marriage ended, his mentor Samuel eventually dies, his best friend is gone, and then it gets worse. And then it gets worse. In 1 Samuel 21, what happens is David runs to a place called Gath. This is where the giant Goliath was from. He's trying to get away. So he ends up in Gath. But the king of the country in Gath sees who David is, recognizes David, and he's like, that's the guy who keeps killing all my people. I've got to do something about it. And so what does David do? 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 12, starts like this. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. This is a guy who was like king, second in command. The person everybody looked up to, they wrote songs about. And now what is he doing? He's pretending to be insane, spit running down into his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? I think that's kind of funny. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then so David is actually able to get away because he's like, you know what? He probably thinks, I'm going to let this guy live in his madness because that's much more uh, hurtful than actually killing him. Uh, chapter 22, verse 1, Then David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. Now I want you to leave your finger right there and I want you to flip over to Psalm chapter 142. Psalm 142. Many rabbis and most modern commentators uh, believe that Psalm 142 was written in this cave where David ran to, to hide, this cave of Adalam, when he lost hope. I think is really interesting about this is that Adalam was actually halfway between Gath and Bethlehem. And this thing is kind of neat with Christmas coming. Yay. So, Psalm 142. This is what it says. A mascal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. 
With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of this, out of the prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. You know what that kind of sounds like? It kind of sounds like Romans 12, 12. Rejoice and hope, be patient, tribulation, be constant in prayer. David has what happens to him, happen to most of us in, our, in the course of our life. He goes from power to a cave. He goes from happiness to loss. He goes from hope to despair. I mean, the question for a lot of us is at some point in your life, you probably hit a cave. And what did that actually look like? David felt like everything had been stripped away from him. He went from everything to nothing. A cave essentially is where we end up in our lives when everything is pulled out from under us and everything is stripped away. It's where you end up when you thought you were going to do all these great things. You're going to go where no man has gone before and nothing works out the way that you plan them. Circumstances you can't control or maybe dumb choices or both. We, we all end up in a cave at some point in our lives. And if you've never been there, someday you will. And you'll be like, oh, I'm so glad I heard that message that one time from that crazy guy. And when you are there in this cave, you will have the temptation to lose all hope because you will begin to think that God has lost track of you, that God has no idea where you are and God has no idea what's going on in your life. But that can be further from the truth. The cave is actually where God does his most amazing work in people. When everything is stripped away, we can rely on nothing but him. Again, David knew the loss of everything, and yet he still knew that God's presence was with him. From his perspective, God had made these promises, you're going to be the next king. But where he's at in this cave, it kind of looked maybe, well, those promises aren't really going to come true. And what you begin to see is David realized from Psalm 142 that he knew he wasn't alone, that God had never left him. But what also happens is the community begins to develop around him. It begins to strengthen him, much one of the reasons why we try to get everybody involved in gospel community. First Samuel 22, we'll just start where we left off. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. This may sound very nice to you. Oh, look, his family came down to be with him because they knew he was in terrible straits. Well, that's not actually what's going on. Saul is probably going after David's family. So David's family is falling apart because of David. David must also look at and go, look at the misery I am causing to all the people I love. But what is amazing about David is he doesn't give up, he doesn't lose hope, he keeps pressing forward. And it goes on and says, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. It's like everyone who was like an irritable, whiner, bankrupt. Yeah, there's David. Let's go and follow him. That's poor guy. And he became commander over them and they were with him about 400 men. And so these 400 men with their family start a community. This community is called Ziklag. Ziklag means press down. It's, it's a place of transition, a place of regeneration, of preparation. It's a hiding place for David. And this is David's actually his last address before he becomes king. Ziklag, he spends his last nights before moving on to the next place that God had from being crowned as king. 
Now, periodically, what they would do is they would raid other villages because it's kind of what you do. It's like, woo, let's go raid, and, and you kind of did that. But what David also did by raiding other villages was he destabilized Israel's enemies so it kept his own country safe. So these raids go on for a while. Things seem to be looking up. David's gathering all the outcasts around him. He's, he's making an effective fighting force. Yay, things are getting a little bit better. Now, open to 1 Samuel chapter 30. One day, they're in a battle about 50 miles from home, and they go back home. Things are looking up, and then this is what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. This is like things are just looking a little bit better. Yeah, and then everything is stripped away. I mean, maybe you, maybe you have something like, like Wendy Stanley. You know, and you have like, like this tumor, and you go into the doctor, and they do a scan. And you think, oh, the scan came back clean. And then two days later, they go, oh, no, sorry, we were wrong. It's not, maybe, maybe you, you get a job and, or you have a job interview for something you really wanted and needed in this economy. Then you get there and they go, oh, sorry, we already filled the position. It's like things look up and then the rug just gets pulled out right from underneath him. And then they, and then they weep. I don't know if you've ever been in a position like that where you want to weep until all your strength is gone. But David understood that. And his, the men that were with him, their, their grief actually turns to anger. In verse 6 in chapter 30, it says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But then you read this great statement, that David strengthened himself. Literally, David found strength in the Lord his God. David encourages himself. He finds strength in the Lord his God. When everything was taken away, when hope was torn away again, and this is the starting point with disappointment and failure. We must honestly name our disappointments to God. In Psalm 142, this is what David does. Last week, I told you that God wants to hear us even in the midst of our distress. I asked if you're able to complain. I asked some of you if it's your spiritual gift. That's all you know how to do is complain. You know, it, that, that could be you. I told you in the book of Psalms, there are thanksgiving psalms and there are enthronement psalms about God being most high. But the most common type of psalms in the book of Psalms is the psalm of lament, of complaining. And I showed you that God actually encourages this. He wants us to tell him our discouragement and our anger. You don't bury it. Because the one thing God doesn't want from you is your silence. He wants you to speak to him. Now, I, I have read somewhere that Shakespeare, they buried him 18 feet deep so no one would dig the guy up. I think that's kind of odd. But, you know, we do that with our disappointments and our, and our failures and everything. We, we try to hide things from God and from ourselves so we never have to do with it. You know, maybe, maybe we lose when you wanted to win like our softball team has been doing this year. We're just having a terrible season. Maybe, again, you apply for a job and you don't get it. Maybe, maybe you're hoping that your health is going to get better and all of a sudden it just gets worse. We bury our feelings 18 feet deep. And I will tell you, when you do not face those and do not speak to those to God, you give up a chance of being able to learn from those things. And God wants to help us to learn from those things. When I fail, I am more worried about other people knowing that I fail rather than my actual failure itself. 
And this whole idea about caves, this actually goes all throughout the scriptures. There's a prophet, his name is Elijah. He's one of the two people in scripture that God takes directly to heaven and doesn't die. Most people would see that as successful. <laughs> it's kind of cool. But after facing an evil king's wife, he runs for his life because he's afraid. He's certain everything in his life has been stripped away. In 1 Kings 19, 3 and 4, it says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And we, you know, I really love about the story is that God never told Elijah to be better than his fathers, better than his ancestors. God just called Elijah to be who God called him to be. In verse 9 in chapter 19, it says, Then he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. He makes his home in this cave. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake of fire but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire the sound of a low whisper and when Elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold there came a voice and said to him what are you doing here Elijah now I love that because God doesn't say what are you doing there God says what are you doing here and again this is one of the most important things we can remember when we lose hope that God has not left us God is right here what are you doing here Elijah see when things are going good we believe oh God must be blessing me things things are so good but in despair is the most wonderful place to realize that you are still loved by God disappointment and failure can give you a gift that says you are loved by God that nothing else can exactly when you are living in a cave like David the cave is where David said in Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You see, God is never a God of discouragement. God does bring us pain sometimes. God does bring conviction over sin. God calls us to repentance. God brings us challenges in our lives that scare us half to death. He brings holiness that overwhelms us. But God never brings discouragement. God always calls us to hope. So what do you do when you find yourself in a place like this cave and you feel like you have no hope? Number one, this is what you do. I told you this first week. You take action. You do something. What happens is David in this situation, he asked one of the priests to bring him an ephod, a reminder of the presence of God, and he asked God, what should I do? In verse 8, in 1 Samuel 30, God says, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David takes action. It's what he did when he wrote the psalm. It's what he does in 1 Samuel 30. Taking action is powerful. When, when you are concerned about everything falling apart, the worst thing you can do is nothing. I mean, God made us so that taking a single step actually brings great hope to people. David Burns writes this. He says, When I am faced with a challenge and do nothing, it leads to distorted thoughts, that I am helpless, hopeless, and beyond change. The end result is self-defeating behavior, procrastination, avoidance, and escapism. These behaviors then reinforce negative thought, and the whole cycle spirals downward. Neil Warren talks about marriages and the loss of hope in that. And he says, lack of hope is what kills marriages more than anything else. When hope dies, the motivation to change dies, and you quit trying. At that time, the death of a marriage is just a matter of time. That's why God calls us to do something. Take my hand. We will walk forward one step after the other. It brings hope.
It brings hope. I mean, and you may feel like a failure, like there's all kinds of discouragement around you, but that is not God's will for your life. God wants you to live in hope. The second thing is sometimes you just have to go through it. Sometimes things are bad and God walks through those things with us instead of pulling us out of the situations. Some people think, oh, I want God to do a miracle and take this addiction or this craving away. And God typically doesn't do that because he wants to walk with us through it so we're stronger on the other side, which I think is actually a greater miracle than God just taking all the pain and stuff away. Um, I mean, God gives us this life and he calls us in this life to move forward with him. Anybody ever see the movie Chariots of Fire? They had the songs that went like, do, 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 do. It's my MIDI version of it. Anyway, Stereo Pirates, it's about the story of this guy. It's a runner. His name is Eric Liddell. And Eric Liddell beats the former world champion. His name is Harold Adams. Now, Harold gets depressed that, that he lost. The pain of losing, the failure, produces such a loss of hope that he decides he's never going to race again, never going to run again. So Harold's uh, girlfriend says to him, you lost a race, not a relative. Right? And Harold says, I have lost. And she says, I know, I was there. It was marvelous. You were marvelous. He was just more marvelous. You know? and, and Harold says, I don't run to take beatings. I run to win. And Sybil says, if you don't run, you can't win. God calls us to run hand in hand with him as he carries us through tough times until the white wheels fall off and we see him face to face. But we go Full forward with him. And the third thing is you use this disappointment, you use failure to teach, to teach you. You have the courage to learn from failure. Uh, there's a book that's called Art and Fear. And what they did in this book was they took two groups of people, uh, two, two groups of students. They took group A and uh, dealing with art, and they said, okay, your job this semester is you are supposed to make as many art projects as you can. Your grade's going to be based, based on quantity, as many as you can do. Right? So stick figure. House, you know, they, they just start going, going to town. The second group, they said, your your grade's going to be based solely on quality. So if you only do one the entire semester, then that's okay. But you're going to be based on that one as long as it's good. And you know what they found out? Group A had both quantity and quality, because even the ones that look like failures, it's okay. They just kept going forward and kept learning. I mean, do you know? Let me give you some things. Henry Ford, his early businesses went and broke five times before he started Ford Motor Company. Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. <laughs> Albert Einstein did not speak until he was four years old uh, and did not read until he was seven, causing his teachers to think that he was handicapped and slow and antisocial. Thomas Edison was, uh, was told, his teachers told him that he was too stupid to learn anything. Thomas Edison took him 1,000 tries. Maybe that's the problem. 1,000 tries to make the light bulb before he got the right one done. Winston Churchill, the guy who sees England through the worst parts of World War II, was defeated in every public election he ran for for office until he became the prime minister at the age of 62. Abraham Lincoln. Oh, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln goes off to war as a captain. He is so bad, he comes home demoted to a private. Vincent Van Gogh sold only one painting his entire life, and that to a friend for just pennies. Uh, Dr. Zeus uh, had 27 different publishers reject his first book to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. Charles Schultz had every cartoon he submitted to his high school yearbook staff rejected. Even after high school, he tried to work for Walt Disney and was rejected. Michael Jordan was actually cut from his high school basketball team. This is, this is what he says. I have missed more than 3,000 shots in my career. I have lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I have been entrusted to take the game-winning shot, and I have missed. 
I have failed over and over and over again, and that is why I succeed. See, this is the point. We don't trust in ourselves, we trust in our God. And when things fail around us, we can still keep going forward because He is our hope. And I believe that you can learn a lot of God's plan for you and I and have greater hope through failures. You know, at one point, David and his men are hiding in another cave from, from the king. Saul, the current king, has to go pee. He shows up, and he's like, I'll go in that cave to go to the bathroom. And David and all of his men are hiding in the back of this cave. In First Samuel 24, 3 and 4, it says, And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is a day with which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. His guy's like, this is the moment. He's in the cave. Let's kill him. You can become king. We don't got to live in Ziklag anymore. We can go live in Jerusalem and live the high life. And see, this is one of the reasons in 1 Samuel 30 why I think the men wanted to stone him and get rid of him. Because at this point, David sees this and he goes, I'm not going to kill him like this. That would be completely dishonorable. And so David refuses, refuses this. What I think is amazing is that David in the cave discovered more than he wanted to be king. He wanted to belong to God that he would rather please God and live in this cave than displease God and live on the throne. In the cave where everything was stripped away is where David starts to learn and understand God's call, God's great dream for his life that inspires hope in all of us because it's the same dream he has for you and I, and that is to please him, as for you and I to glorify him because when that happens, his people gain much joy and we live in great hope. So the question for you is if you're living in a place where everything is stripped away, or maybe you've been there, you ask the questions, are you chasing the right dream? Are you chasing God's dream for you, trying to trace your own dream? Is what you are pursuing consistent with God's calling for your life? Are you operating in what God made you to do? Are you trying to do things simply out of a need to feel important? And are you willing to stay in a cave if that means being true to who God calls you to be? See, in Psalm 142, David says, You are my refuge. David takes refuge in God. I mean, we know how the story ends. David gets out of the cave, he becomes king. But for David, the cave is all he knows. He doesn't know if it gets any better than that. What if the cave is all God has for you? Are you still content to trust him? I have a, I have a friend of a friend. Friend of a friend. I says, um, her name is uh, Kristen Johnson. She grew up uh, in Orchid here. She went to church with her family. She, she loves God, does, did pretty decently. Uh, on, on July 18, 2008, she meets a guy named Dan. Here's a, here's a picture. Okay. She loves him a lot. You can tell. Right. Now, uh, Dan gets deployed to Iraq. And while there, Kristen, when she's 24 years old, she's diagnosed with cancer, liposarcoma. On July 5th, uh, 2009, she finds out that this cancer is in. She, she's angry with God, but she endures. She, she goes through treatment. She comes out the other side cancer-free. And she wanted me to actually tell you guys that through this whole time, Dan, even over in Iraq, was her greatest support for going through this. And so Dan comes home, and they get married. She actually marries Dan one year after the diagnosis on June 5th, uh, 2010. You know, things are looking up. Cancer, obviously, get married. Things are going to look better. One month after this, one month after this, Dan gets redeployed again. Four months to the day of their wedding, October 5th, 2010, uh, Kirsten gets a knock on her door, and it's the guys, and they tell her Dan was killed in Afghanistan. He serves on the, uh, uh, on the EOD, the, the bomb squad, essentially, in Iraq. And so a few months later, uh, my, my friend actually asks her, he says, um, how is your faith in God? And she says, I still believe, but right now we're not talking to each other. <laughs> 
Then uh, June, June 2nd, 2011, she is diagnosed with cancer again, again. And right now, uh, it, is, it is literally like one year after Dan is killed, she is currently going through chemotherapy again, battling this cancer again. And we were going to, see, I'm getting all choked up about it. We were going to actually have her come and share her story, but she can't because she's going through chemotherapy again. So we asked her, what, what could we say for you to the people at Element? This is what she said. She goes, read this. I used to view myself as a weak person. My life had been easy. My biggest fear was losing a loved one. I thought that I would never be able to handle life without someone that I loved. And then my 20s hit. After being diagnosed with cancer for the first time, I was hopeful. I was angry that I was dealing with an illness, but I was hopeful that I would be healed by Jesus. After losing Dan, my hope definitely took a hit. I still believed, but I was less hopeful that my life would turn out the way I wanted it to. And then I was diagnosed again. At this point, I shut down. I was angry. I had to change things. I had to completely surrender everything to Jesus. I realized that I had no control over my life. My beloved husband was dead, and I was sick yet again. I spent days yelling at God. But in the end, he filled me with an unending feeling of hope. And I love this. She doesn't stop talking to God. She yells at him, and God honors that. This world is full of pain and tragedy, sickness and suffering. But in the end, my hope is not in this world. I continue to put my hope in Christ and spend eternity with Him. I'm sure that my life will be challenging once again, but I will continue to have hope. Hope is a gift that God gives me every single day. And without that hope, I would be lost. See, to me, you know, just imagine if she was here giving this story. I'd be like, ah. Yeah, couldn't really handle that. When there is no way out, you must understand that God knows all about caves. Because Jesus suffered like us and for us, and no one descended like Jesus did. Jesus comes to earth, willingly gives up his glory, his safety. In the end, his best friend and all of his friends deny him. And it gets worse. He is crucified. He is killed. He is laid in a cave. But the most amazing thing is that God does his best work in caves. And he raises Jesus to new life, and he calls you and I to also be able to live in that new life. If you are in a cave, a cave is where God resurrects dead things. It is where he offers and brings hope to all of humanity. God does his best work in caves. And I want to tell you this morning, if you are here, and if you have lost hope, God longs to restore hope to you. I mean, this is why every week we put some deacons and elders in the back. Because if you need prayer... And if you like, feel like things are lost or out of control, they would love to pray with you. If you do not know who Jesus Christ is, guys, I, I will tell you, you will never understand the trueness of what hope is supposed to be. And today would be the best day of your life to surrender yourself to him. The band will come up. They're going to do a couple songs. Reminding us of God's great goodness and God great, God's great hope for you and I. That, that when we, we come to this place, you know, it's, it is about the things that God has done for us. And that's not because we are so good, simply because He is so good. So we invite you while the songs are played that you take communion. You break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminding us of His blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be a people of hope. Reminding us that, that He died and rose, that He was placed in a cave and rose again to offer us newness of life. There are an offering boxes on the side of one in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, giving as part of our worship. So we don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done for you and I. Then there's still some food in the back. Unless Sean ate it all. Did you? Yeah. All right. So there's still some food in the back. Cookies, something. Uh, and we invite you, grab something to eat, meet some other people. 
Again, you know, when David's in his worst spot, he, you know, th- this community begins to gather around him, which is simply amazing because it actually helps. He strengthens them. Uh, they, he strengthens them. They strengthen him as a community is supposed to, as we focus on who our great God is. Community together, strengthening each other, reminding us of what God has called us to be and the great hope that we are to have. And this is what God intends for his people, for you and I to live as a people of hope displaying that even in the midst of all kinds of stuff, God calls us to greater and bigger things. And we simply need to trust Him and then walk in that hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that we as your people would understand more and more what true hope really is. That we would trust you and not ourselves. That we would honor you And that in the midst of everything being stripped away from us, we remember that nothing can strip you away. Your promise that you will hold those in your hands the Father has given you, and nothing can remove us. And so in the midst of our caves, I ask you to remind us of that. And that in that remembrance of you and what you have done, that we would begin to walk forward with your strength and your hope to step into the people you've called us to be. So our lives are focused upon you, that you are lifted up, that you are glorified. And when you are glorified, I ask that you give your people great hope and joy. Because all that we are is surrendered to you. God, thank you for loving us the way that you do and for never leaving or forsaking us, but for calling your people home day after day after day and restoring us to us so much hope. Teach us to live in that hope. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.